0: Welcome to Innovate for Impact, an informative miniseries brought to you by Tanya Gomez Consulting. In this series, we embark on a journey to explore the remarkable innovations that are shaping the landscape of the NGIS for a more inclusive future. Join us as we uncover inspiring stories of visionary individuals, organisations and technologies that are revolutionising the way we approach disabilities. Hello and welcome back to Innovate for Impact. Today I'm joined by Walter Tran from Centro Assist. Welcome, Walter. Welcome to the show.
1: Thanks, Tanya. Thanks for having me. I've been really wanting to catch up and talk to you for a long time.
0: Yeah, it's great. It's great to um, to have you on and to hear all about the story behind Centro Assist. So, I guess I'll uh, call out the elephant in the room nice and early and say that for many years, I guess we've been competitors, and I've been watching the Centro Assist journey from afar. Um, I've I've had the pleasure of using the system many times as an auditor, um, and you know, made my way through the system with some of my clients. Um, but yeah, it's really great to sit down with you and hear, I guess, the story behind. And- and Talk more about the innovation in the space because I guess that's what we're here to talk about today is all the amazing innovation, um, and specifically from a technology point of view, being that you're mostly a technology company.
1: Mm, yeah, that, that's a cool thing. Like, and, and thanks for recognizing it, it's, it's quite interesting, right? In this sector, uh, sometimes as competitors, you don't really talk to each other until you know a, a different spot. But, um, um the of Central is actually quite interesting. I, I actually uh, have been part of a software company called Holocentric for about 15 years now. And about um, five years ago, or actually six years ago is now, um, the CEO at the time, this gentleman named Bruce, um, you know, we'd been doing large corporates as customers, you know, big brand names um, that everybody knows that those were our customers. Um, and he was looking to exit the business. So he was starting to look for people to buy, buy the software company and and interestingly, as he as he spoke to potential acquirers of the software company, a lot of the people told him that you know you got to show that you can focus, you can dominate a market, um, and I'm sure that that resonates with, with <laughs> what you do on a daily basis, right? Tanya, talking to providers, you know, focus yeah. on what you're good at. Show yeah. us that you're good at that. Yeah. Um, so you know, by that time, uh, he gave me the kind of opportunity to go out and look for for an opportunity. Um, but there's a bit more of a setup to that story because uh, what happened was in, in 2015. We happened along the NDIA. So we actually uh picked up the NDIA as a customer. Um, you know, I spent some time in Toganong, uh, even went down to Geelong as they were setting up. Um it's as if the world was kind of telling us something's happening over here. So and, and prior to that, i I knew nothing about the sector. I, I knew absolutely nothing. So I was a you know, what would they call them now? Immigrants to the sector. Um, yeah. you know, it wasn't something that I was familiar with. Um and then just by happenstance, um, uh, you know, a lot of people remember WA were holding out on the NDIS for a long time. Yes. They didn't want to be part of the scheme. They're a little bit different there. But, like you know, we don't have as many entrepreneurs. Uh, you're Obviously, Tanya, you're over there now, so you you, <laughs> you can compare But the East Coast to the West Coast, you know, dynamic a little bit more. Yes. Um, but so I got to spend some time in WA in Perth as well with the DSC. Um, So picking all that up, by the time Bruce gave me the opportunity to look for for a market... Disability was one of my top choices, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and what, what I did was, um, I studied it for about three, three months. Um, so, you know, I even call myself an N- NDIS nerd sometimes. Can you imagine just reading everything you can on the NDIS and actually passionately reading it, right? I'm sure, I'm sure you did that, you do the same thing, right? telling it's, it's what, it's the sector that we belong to. So you, you, you live and breathe it, um, and you study it. Um, and what, what I saw was, you know, there was going to be a lot of providers who weren't necessarily mature in the way that they looked at compliance but needed to comply because if they didn't, you know, the outcomes of, of what we do in this sector is, is pretty dramatic, right? Um, you know, if I, if I compare it to an airline, for example, you know, if we look at an organization like Qantas, you know, who's in, in the news lately a lot, uh, obviously for different reasons, but you know, if Qantas screws up with their compliance, people die you know, planes don't land, people die, right? It's, it's quite dramatic. In this sector, we kind of have the same thing, right? If we, if as service providers, if we do the wrong thing, there's gonna be harm, right, to people, right? And so we have the same requirements as, you know, big um, uh, big enterprise, but we don't have the funding, we don't have the investment, we don't have the maturity to look into it the same, right? And hence, I think that's what drove our our drive into the sector. You know, as technologists, you know, even as an engineer in by, by education, we have this natural belief that we can solve problems better. That's what you you know you get trained into as an engineer. You go, okay, how do you find a better solution to this? Mm-hmm. Um and so that was both interesting and a business challenge at the same time because you, you could see that there was gonna be a whole whole uh whole range of people that didn't really understand or had experience in, in managing compliance, but needed to. And so we were thinking, okay, how can we use technology to accelerate that for them? Or ultimately, which is our tagline, reduce that burden or remove that burden for them, mm-hmm. right? So, so it's less cumbersome. So, no, it's interesting. Like as 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 people that are both in the compliance space, you know, I watch what you do and your approach to that, and you're trying to save, solve the same problem. You're educating, mm-hmm. you're you're leading them through it. Whereas as a as a technologist, I'm trying to think, okay, what can I do with a with a piece of software? To actually help them through that. Um, so, then, so that's the backstory. So we've been, been around since 2018 and it's been, been a, obviously a, a, a roller coaster over a ride. But.
0: Yeah. So I have a question for you on um, the system. So why did you decide to go into a system? I guess it's a quality management system that includes the policies and procedures as opposed to something yeah. like Shift Care or Brevity that's more of a client management system.
1: Yeah, it's crazy. Look, one of the things in, in software too. Um, and again, it, it applies to any business. You, you focus in on what you're good at. Focusing on what you're good at. You know, some of these other systems like ShiftCare and all the other systems that you named, are, you know, I, I, I put them in the bucket of ERPs, right? All your, your, your core management systems. They're good at running your operations and recording all the stuff that you're doing. Um, but for us, our background was compliance. You know, for, for these large corporates, we were quality management systems, we were business management systems. Uh, we were like knowledge capture systems. So that's what our our history was. So moving into compliance was natural for us because we had all the learnings already prior. It was just that it was in a different sector. Um look, on top of that too, and this is this is something that's scary for a lot of people, we didn't see anybody taking technology to it either. Mm. Right? So in the compliance space, you know, people still talk about documents a lot. <laughs> you know, documents. Right. And you go, hang on, what year is this? It's twenty twenty three. Why are we still using documents so much? Um, so for me, there was a challenge there. And I think for most business people, you know, having a challenge like that really drives you know innovation and, and, and continued growth in your business, right? So I think that's what drove us. So you know again, a number of factors, right? The fact that we had come from there and the fact that nobody else was doing it. Or or nobody that we thought you no, know, there was definitely some incumbents. Tanya, like I'm not, I'm not going to say there wasn't anybody doing you know, technology in the space, mm-hmm. but when when we looked at them, we thought, oh wow, there's still so much more we could do. Yeah, and, and that's where we saw opportunity.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, so I think I think. At Provider Plus, we tried to solve the – at Provider Plus, the first – so even before I I founded Provider Plus, I started doing NDIS applications because I sat on the board uh, of a disability provider that was going through a rollover and we paid a consultant almost $50,000 to register us and they really had no idea what they were doing at all. Um, And when I looked at the process, being that I am the system-minded, I went, right, there's actually only a few elements to this. And at the time we did the silly state-based Thing where we had applications in every state and all processes were different. But even with the five or six different processes, the core of it was very simple to systemize. And I thought, well, when I met Will, um, I, I was like, well, you know, his idea was, well, instead of 50,000, can we get it to under 3,000 and can we scale this? And I had never had that thought. I was like, well, I, you know, I was charging, I thought 50,000 was a lot. So I was like, well, let's charge 10,000. And you know, as a, a solo person doing this, ch- ch- charging $10,000 for what I could systemize and scale myself seemed to be very profitable. But Will definitely saw the bigger, bigger play than I did. Um, and we approached it from a, you know, everyone comes to you and wants to get access. So the first problem we wanted to solve was access, which was registration. Um, And I know that that you don't technically do registration, but you provide the, the documents and the system for that. Um, but there's so many problems in NGIS you could really, you know, it, it's not what are the opportunities, it's where do you start and what can you go mm. narrow and deep on because, you know, yeah. there's yeah. and, yeah, there's lots of times where we've, we, we've done a number of MVPs or we did a number of MVPs around technology to see how we could utilise technology more, but being that it wasn't our mm. skill set, we um we decided that it wasn't something we could be the best in the market at so we would leave it to people who could be better than us in those areas
1: and i think that's the that's the sage advice i think you know you, you talk to business mentors and they all say that right like stick to what you're good at and, and scale what you're good at and yeah you know being that technology background and that's why you know i, I think when we first met you, you know, i think you asked me you know do you guys do any consulting i'm like no no that's leave it to the guys who are good at you know consulting that's what they're yeah. good at. that's what their business model is i think with technology too um to your point uh, for us the vision was always not just to help them get started but to be there as their backbone as they grew their business. Mm-hmm. You know, um, No, I think I met somebody recently who had met us back in like 2019 uh, and we haven't connected since, you know, for like four years, right? Um, And, and the thing with technology is we, we kept involving them, right? So as we find more things that we can solve or expand the problem that we're solving, we, we, we're doing that. And so for us, there's this journey, this is ongoing journey where we're we're adjusting and we're adding modules because what I've learned in this sector is that now we've got a range, like the the range of variety of providers is just crazy, right? You've got small providers who are mature minded, like they might be business minded. And then you've got big providers who are like still in the in the, in the dark ages, right? It's just completely like a big mix up there. And so you have to figure out who you can help the most and then focus on them and try to get them up to speed, but then also not, not that not that the other ones go as well so you no know, the challenge for us at the moment is um you know making sure that our system is modular to be able to support different clients at different maturity levels but also give them a path to continue that maturity right because over time they will uh you know it's not just okay give them a solution for today mm-hmm. but also build that with them as they as they mature as their business changes as well right? yeah um you no know, one, one of the things that warms my heart tanya i'm not sure if you, you get to round back to some of your, your early clients but i Really warms my heart to you know bump into some clients that we had started the journey with, you know four or five years ago, and then see them now, and you go, wow, what you know, fantastic! You've you've definitely innovated in what you've done, and we have too, so it's good to see.
0: Well, that's kind of the great thing about consulting is that I, I, you know, my. The clients that I work with now that helped form Tanya Gomez Consulting, all of those were the i, I helped register them in 2016 or 17, you know, under their even earlier underneath their state-based systems. Then I helped move them to NDIS. Um, so some of them are, one of them's going through um, their recertification audit, and this will this will be the fourth audit of theirs that I've sat through with them. Um, this time because the borders are open, I'm actually going to go and sit in person with them and go through or with them for the yeah. first time. Um, but they're now my Retainer clients that that I assist, and I am part of their team, and I do get to, to see the journey. Um, and I and I don't just help with compliance; I help with business strategy and figuring out what does you know what are the risks, how do we overcome these risks? Um, and that's the benefit of having multiple clients is that I can go right. This works here. This has I've seen the risk here. I've seen that not go well. So yeah, for me, definitely being on the journey is is a, is a pivotal part. And part of the reason why I decided to it was time to move on from Provider Plus because I was I was really over that, that transactional nature of registration where there's I wanted to be able to help people in a real meaningful way. Um, and working for myself, mm-hmm. I get to pick and choose what that looks like. So it, for me it's, you know, the, um, the best of both worlds.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I agree. Totally agree. Totally agree.
0: So, tell me about your quality management system. Walk me through what exactly, for someone who hasn't heard of this before, what is a quality management system and, and what essential Assist, what are your, your biggest benefits or features?
1: Mm, yeah, well, that's, that's a good one. If, um, if you think about the system, it was actually designed from the practice standards, funnily enough. Um, we, when we first started, we, we broke down the practice standards, chucked them on a wall and said, okay, how do we help people with compliance to these things? Now, obviously the practice standards, I think for mass count, there's like something like 200 something line items, if you break them down into kind of statements. Um, so there's a lot there, right? But there's a lot of overlaps. Um, so when we distilled that down, we, we saw a few kind of like modules of, of areas, right? And I'm not talking about the supplementary modules here. I'm talking about in terms of like a system, what would it be? Yeah. Right? Um, obviously policies and procedures, are a big chunk of it, um, you know, but, but the way that I look at policies and procedures, and again, coming coming from big corporate, um, some of the big corporates that I spent time with uh, were when I was in in my 20s, um, a bit more rebellious. You know, when you when you land land in a workplace in your 20s, you think you can change the world, and you think what the oldies put in doesn't work, right? Um, and I remember landing at what, this one particular big corporate, and one of the instant management policies was 100 pages. Yeah, and um, I looked at that and thought. This is crazy. You guys actually think that people follow this. Yeah. Right. As a 20 year old. And what I, what I learned there was that in certain places, there's all this organic knowledge that happens. Like, cause you have people that's, that are there 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. You have people in, you know, utility companies that start their apprenticeship and never leave. So, you know what? Yeah. That's all their knowledge bottled up in those hundred pages. But for somebody who's in their twenties, there was zero chance I was going to get that. Like, yeah. I'm not going to sit there and read hundred pages. And that was me back then. Can you imagine, you know, not, not to have a stab at the millennials, but the attention span as we get younger in the generations here, I think they're not going to look at it either. And so for me, one learning, taking all those learnings from big corporate, what was key for us was to go, okay, how do we make policy and procedures number one more easily found? Because the first thing a lot of people have in policy and procedures sometimes is, they'll say they have it and then you go so where do you where do you have it oh. and and i remember one of the first people that i met um i'll just say her first name so i don't i don't necessarily point her out but but kathy who i met pretty early in the process she showed me her binder yeah her physical binder and i was it was really impressive it was all color coded it was like one of the most amazing binders i'd ever seen actually i was really impressed but then I, I said to her kathy i get it you put all this effort into it but do you know if they read it? <laughs> and she paused, right, because she knew, she knew, she knew they didn't. She knew they didn't. But from her perspective, that was her understanding of what her obligation was as a business leader, right? Was just, just, just make it available to them, and and hence you'd be okay. And you're like, I don't believe that because I know if you made it available to me, remember my twenty somethings, I wouldn't have read it, right? Yeah, and so. Taking that step further, so obviously number one is making it easier to easier to find, and you know some of the inno- some of the innovations that we've added over the years to it. Um, there's like a Google voice search in it now, mm-hmm. so you know for one of the things that we found in sector was um, we don't we're not great spellers normally anyway. I'm not sure about you, Tanya, but you know there's some words I just can't spell, right? Um, so it's easier to say them too, right? So uh, we actually got uh, Google voice search in there, so you can hit the button and just say it. And, and it actually connects with Google Voice and then it just types it up for you, which is kind of cool. Yeah, that's um, great. But that was driven from the fact that the front line that we have in this sector is diverse, right? We have people from English, second language and that sort of stuff. Um, so that was the first thing, right? Making sure that people could, could get into a system and find things really quickly. Instead of needing to talk to Bob or talk to somebody to actually get that, like break that cycle of this kind of, um, you know, we used to call this tribal knowledge. I'm not sure you've heard that term before, Tanya. Yeah. yeah. Tribal knowledge, obviously being, being knowledge that's just in the organization because you have people that are that are around a lot and you go, we're turning it into tacit knowledge, right? That actually lives in the organization that can share straight away, right? So, mm-hmm. so that was one. Uh, but even in the policy and procedure space, there's a few other little things, right? Um, and people don't realize it until you kind of peel under the covers. Like, you know, one of my pet peeves Again, uh, coming from big corporate, but even in this sector, was when when you would see like you know uh, glossary of definitions at the beginning of every policy mm. that would drive me mental. Uh, I'm not sure about you, Tanya, like because I've got a little bit of OCD sometimes, right? You know, if you if you have like ten policies and they all have definitions, those definitions, if they're the same, they better be the same definition. Yeah, they better be the exact same definition. Otherwise. My OCD goes overboard and goes, hang on, how how do you correlate this? Well, there's a different definition over here to this, this definition over here. <sighs> Something's not right. And you get it, right? Because when there's separate documents, you have to do it that way. Yeah. There's no other way to do it. But when you go digital, you can do stuff that's like, it feels like Wikipedia, right? Where you can link a word to the definition. Yeah. yeah. It's actually super easy to do using technology. It's just that because you're using you're using a different medium and hence you can move the needle then to make it easier. Mm. In documents, yeah, that's going to be a pain in the butt. Guess yeah. what? You're still going to have the word there. Even if you link it, it's still going to be a lot of work, right? You can't pull that off as nicely. Yeah. So try to embed that knowledge into the policy and procedure. Um, and then even on the policy and procedure piece, I'm big on, on trying to make stuff as short and sharp as possible. Um, you know, you know, coming back to that comment I made about the policy being like 100 pages, mm. you can't, right? Like people, when they look at a policy, you can't put them to sleep when they read it. Mm. That defeats the purpose. So, so distilling that down and, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm probably preaching to the converter, right? Tanya, you've probably seen more policies than I have. Um, you know, they've got to be able to be scannable, but to write less actually takes a lot of effort. Yeah, it's true. I'm not sure if you've ever tried to cut down a big policy and try to still keep its essence in there.
0: Yeah,
1: it is tough. You have to do multiple rounds of this stuff to cut it down, and then you and then you have to balance the is it too simple or not, right? So I'm a big component of of trying to chop it down, or reduce its formatting and the amount of prose that people put in. Uh, so some of the content that we ship is being stylized like that to make sure that it's as simple as we can get it to. Um, no, but that, that has some challenges, I think, for people who who want that mass or are comfortable with the mass of words. Um, but so policy and procedures is, is the first piece of the system. Um, obviously, a system to house it, but but to find it, to use it, to consume it. Mm. Uh, but then even related to that, um, again, a peeve of mine was you know when you join a workforce and they give you a stack of policies and procedures, and then they go, oh, you know, just sign your name here, Walter, that you've read it. And I and I laugh at that all the time because we've all been there, right? Yeah. Where you go, yeah, I'll sign it, but you know I haven't read them. <laughs> and I'm studious, Tanya. I'm 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 a relatively studious person, right? Like I'm, I was one of those kids back at school that would do their homework as soon as we got home. I'm one of those guys. Me too. Yeah? I'm one of those, yeah, I'm, yeah. So so and I'm owning up to the fact that if I got given a massive stack, that I would have signed it without without reading it all. Yeah. Because it was huge. You know, it's like reading a, a novel, right? And we know that our frontline would do the same. Um, I'm not saying that all of them are. I'm not suggesting they all are like that. But it, it is because it's hard. We've made it hard for them to understand it. That's really the issue here. Yeah. And so for me, I, I looked at that and thought, okay, how can we at least improve that experience? Uh, and one of the patterns that I saw was that um, as as compliance managers or or as directors of companies, one of the things that we hate, uh, I'm not sure about you, Tanya, but I, I hate nagging people. I actually hate nagging people. People people think naggers like nagging, and you're like, no, I'd rather not nag you if I had the choice. I'm only doing it out of necessity to nag you, right, because I need to make sure that you've done this thing. I don't actually want to nag you. Yeah. Um, so what we've got in the system then is like this auto-nag feature where we can set up reading lists, for your policies and procedures, for your different roles that you have in your business, so your support worker might just be given twenty policies and procedures to read, but it's it's on an auto nag. So <laughs> if they don't read it all, if they don't read it all within within the first month, the system will nag them for you. Yeah. So instead of you nagging them, right? So as soon as so instead of being the compliance manager and nagging them, the system does it. Yeah. And the system doesn't care about their excuse; it would just nag them again next month. Yeah. Right? And it just keeps on doing that. And what we found in practice, it actually works really well because, you know, you're not stressed now as a compliance manager trying to, trying to make sure that everybody's read it. You know, the system's nagging them and then you can download a report to really hit them on, you know, slap them on the wrist if they haven't. Right. So, um, even something like that for us was where we found value in technology and the ability to leverage technology to do that. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and being one centralized system, it just makes everything easier. Yeah. So. So that's kind of like our, our base system the, um, around policy and procedures. But um, over, the, over the years, we've added a few modules just to extend the coverage of the India's practice standards. Um, extending from the kind of required reading, I also thought that was still flawed, right? So if I put my compliance hat on and go, all right, I finally got the staff member to tell me that they said they've read it. Can you still sleep at night if they just told you they read it? part of me still feels uneasy, right? Because I'm going, just because they said they've read it doesn't mean they understand it. doesn't mean they're actually going to live by it. So mm-hmm. for me, we we then added a, what we call our knowledge testing module to the system, which is a bunch of quizzes around quizzing the frontline workers around things in the policies and procedures, right? So um, they're based around all the main principles. You know, uh, one of the things that I'm kind of saddened about, uh, and again, Tanya, uh, great to hear from you. You, you see this too, but. One of the basic concepts of the India's practice standards is conflict of interest. Mm-hmm. But conflict of interest is, is something I think unique to the care sector. You know, compared to, you know, if you come from out of sector, conflict of interest is not a thing.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: I'm going, if I do my job well, yeah, of course, give me a present. I'll take that home. Thank you very much. You no, know, but, but in this, in this sector, it, it creates a conflict of interest and you have to be aware of that. So being able to educate our front line on that is super important, and those are the sorts of things that we put into those knowledge tests, right? So that staff are aware. So not only we think they've read the the policy, but they've actually understood what's in there. Uh, so that's one of the modules. Uh, the other two modules, um, the, the second module we added over time was um, called internal audit. Um, you know, um, this obviously has some overlaps in some of the the services you provide, Tanya, but. From a technology standpoint what we were trying to do was create a system where they could schedule audits store their audits and actually use that as a continuous improvement driver right yeah so not just schedule it on paper and store it all on on, on, a, on, a, on a usb drive or sharepoint actually have it systemized in the quality management system right um, but we took it a step further too we, we knew that in this sector um, when I first was interest, uh, researching it, I was looking for internal audits, like standardized internal audits, mm. and there was no such thing, right? Like I'm sure you, you ran into that too. There was, there's no such thing as a standardized internal audit. Yeah. Um, so we, we took that opportunity to, um, to look at the practice standards and create audits aligned to that in that way that um, people not only have the system to schedule it, but also the tools to actually complete it using our mm. system as well. So um, that's quite a, a popular module. And then the last module... Or oh, the more recent the most recent module that we added um was the registers module. All right. So, you know, the the focus on incidents and complaints and feedback and improvements and risks, all that sort of stuff. And I'm not suggesting you, you can't you can't run a business using old school Excel registers. I, I think you can. Like if you if if you have them set up the right way, have people using them the right way, you can you can do that. But when you get to a certain volume, it doesn't scale that nice. Yeah. Right. Um so what we did then was turn, turn that again into digital, right? So you have a digital form that's got all the fields set up already, so they're downs and whatnot, and then they get added to a register that you can see or you can report on. So all the stuff that you expect really if you were to digitize that experience, right? We've actually turned that into a whole registers add-on for people. Now, um, that has some overlaps with some of the care management systems though, because some of them do you know, things like incidents. Um, but for a lot of providers, It actually adds, obviously, closes a loop that uh, closes a hole that they've had because, um, especially around incidents, um, you know, when you use a basic incident register, uh, it's hard to log um, updates to it. You know, for for a flat register works for things like complaints and feedback quite easily, but when you have stuff that's got a bit more of a tail, like incidents, where you might need to you know log the actions that you've taken to escalate it or report it externally. Having a digital experience where you can log, you know, the, the comment on it makes it actually a lot more easier, right? Mm-hmm. And then reportable later on as well. So, um, they're the, they're the kind of three, uh, modules we've got on top of the base of policy and procedures. Yeah. So that's kind of the worded version of the, uh, the website, Tanya. You, you made me just recall the, uh, <laughs> the, the website there.
0: And and what what's in the works? What's your development schedule? Do you have other modules in the works that you're that you're able to talk about as far as other things that you're working on?
1: Yeah, look, I think that's the cool thing about being a technology company, right? Like you're always thinking about more, or deeper. So for us, we're definitely you know staying in the compliance space, uh, in the quality space. We just want to keep on extending. There there are, there are small things that you can continue to ex- expend on. Um, but there's some bigger stuff as well, some bigger opportunities. Um uh, funnily enough, one of the one of the things that we're exploring at the moment, um, uh telling sure you how much you've used this a uh, little bit, you know, with Chat GPT this year, you know, um making AI a little bit more easy uh, for people to understand and use. Uh, we've been exploring that. Yeah. You know, because you know, to be honest, my pipe dream is ultimately that that a frontline worker can just get answers to what they need as quickly as possible to do their job. Mm, so like to, 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 to reference well not necessarily chatbot but some of that some of that right to really serve information back out to them mm. so instead of maybe you know um getting them to read through the whole thing maybe just give them the answer yeah because right? you've got the answers maybe you just give them the answers if they ask the question right mm-hmm. uh, so that's quite exciting so there's all, all, all sorts of experiments happening behind the scenes to see what works but i must say you know there's the reality of what you can deliver on the technology front versus what you see that's getting hyped in the hype, in the hype circle at the moment. Yeah. Um, to, to even give you an insight, um, the computers that you need to support a chatbot right now is still pretty expensive mm, um, right. unless you're willing to give all your data to the chat the chat companies, mm. which you don't really want to. You don't really want to give them that sort of stuff, right? You want to keep that to yourself. So. Um, so as the technology to support that or the, the actual hardware to support that uh, changes in, in its cost, I think we're going to start to see some of that being implemented. Yeah. Um, uh, but to be honest, we, we're just trying to stay lockstep with our customers. Um, so a lot of the stuff isn't us as technology geeks going, hey, look what I found. Let's use this for, for to solve a new problem for you. It's more the, okay, provider, what what else are you using this for? What other problems related to this or adjacent problems are you using for this? But, um the other driver, to be honest, too, is is connecting um, our system up with more of the other, you know, the client management systems. Yeah. Uh, I think there's this pipe dream that we all have, right, which is I just wish one system would do everything.
0: Yeah.
1: I think we all love that, right? Like, you yeah. can imagine. Right? I'm, I'm not, I don't even want to ask you how many systems you use, Tanya, to do yeah. your job. right? Yeah, like, too many. <laughs> too many. <laughs> yeah. So... So, as a technology company, that's what one of the things that we need to work on too, which is to go. Uh, how do we connect up with some of our you know other other vendors in here in the in the sector?
0: Yeah.
1: Um, To to give this kind of one systems feel at least to to our customers because they they don't want to have the complexity of multiple systems all the time.
0: Yeah, um, so, so building we, out we that. Make, that tech stack of what does that look like and I guess so LTI and API integrations between things so that you can use your Google logon yeah. to log into everything so it's single sign-on and then you can navigate your got way it. through without. I think got that it. is that is yeah. the, the dream of everybody, right, that we have one system um, that, that <laughs> enables us to just log in once and have everything at our fingertips.
1: Look, and, and we've, got, we've got some of that already, right? Like we're, we're on the Azure platform. Yeah. So anybody that's a user of Microsoft, uh, you can single sign on with that. But, you know, it's quite interesting, you know, at the lower end of our, our sector, you know, who aren't not-for-profits. You know, if you're not-for-profit, great. You get all this stuff for free from Microsoft. Yeah. Uh, when you're not a not-for-profit, guess what? you got to pay for that out of your pocket. Yeah. And when you have a part-time worker, yeah, you probably don't want to pay for an email address or a SharePoint account for them. Yeah. So um, there's some other... Complexities, you know, some of these attributes that we have in our sector—that's a bit different. But no, for us, that—that's the ultimate thing to kind of create more of a frictionless experience and, and adding more value over time. Um, you know, as a, as a technology company, you just got to keep your eyes open to what customers want really right, over time. Uh, it's not, like I said, it's not about us finding a new toy and, and trying to figure out what works. Mm.
0: And did I did I read it right that it's not just NGOs providers that you assist, but it's also people in the aged care space?
1: Yeah. Look, funnily enough, um, a lot of people don't know this, and even even the customers that that are that have us in aged care don't even know this until they actually look at the web app when they log in, mm. um, because we, we partner with ACPA. Uh, so ACPA used to be called Laser, um, and they actually um, sell our product, but they they we, we call it white labeling in our in our industry where. Yeah. We actually have it, have somebody else sell it, but they obviously add their own flavour of stuff to it as well. So, uh, ACPA actually sells it, and they call it the SQMS. Okay. Um, but it's actually the same. It's actually the same system. Uh, so mm-hmm. all the features that I just talked about is exactly the same system. Um, uh, obviously, in in aged care, and it's actually quite exciting. I think over the next few years, I think Tanya, right? As as some of these converge, and we're already starting to see it, uh, where we're seeing some of these disability providers realizing that jumping to adjacent markets like aged care is quite natural. Yeah. Um, the other way, less so, you know, especially for you know residential aged care, but obviously home care providers who are in aged care, it's the same sort of jump on the other side. So um, I, I don't know about you, Tanya. I, I've got this hypothesis, right? Like um, I think at some point in time, don't know when, Don't don't. I'm not going to put money on exactly when it's going to happen, but I think that will end up being the same scheme. Hopefully no, nobody from each commission start shooting daggers my way and and think that we're trying to get rid of one of the commissions. But I think ultimately there's so much overlap in there that you could probably combine them one scheme somewhere?
0: I read a paper that was out last last week that was from the aged care review of the at-home care support scheme that's due in July next year, and it did say that it's built on the practice standards and that over time mm-hmm. they would merge. So I, I think that is public yeah. knowledge. I don't think I, I made that assumption a long time ago also when I first read the papers because I think it's been pushed back two years now, um, but when I read, yeah. first read the papers that was my assumption and at the time I got on the phone to all the AQ all the auditing bodies that I knew and was like, Am I reading this right? Is this what's happening? And they were like, Yeah, you know, yeah. I know a number of auditing bodies have have the um are doing the trial to train NDIS auditors in in home care standards so that the that you can um, eventually audit aged care well at home care and NDIS together. So it won't be residential. Yeah. Residential auditing also rolled out through AQAs as a trial last year. Um yeah. Um, but I think that it is looking at, at the similar model. So it would make sense for your system to be able to support both because it would be one provider that would that would just continue offering supports as people turn 65. right.
1: Exactly Right. makes no sense otherwise. You know one of, the, one of the interesting things that we've heard because of, because that they're different now, you know, if you were a provider that did both, your experience actually is not great. Right. Because, you know, you get audited over here by NDIS and then you go and get audited by here and they don't care what you've done for the other part, yeah. right? So they just want to know what you've got for aged care. They yeah. just want to know what you've got for NDIS. Yeah. And you've got all this extra stuff. They're like, no, that's noise. I don't want to hear that's that. Noise. I don't want to see that's that. Noise. That's right. Yeah.
0: yeah. They, um, they have a modified sorry. pathway for residential providers undergoing NDIS registration. Um, and I, I was trained mm. on that recently and I've done a few audits in that space. And the, the poor residential aged care providers are so confused at to what to give you and what to show you and what to explain. You're mm. like... I don't care about that. <laughs> it's completely irrelevant. I'm <laughs> looking at these five things, you know. Help me yeah, find yeah, these yeah. five things, and you do spend most of your time just explaining what you're looking for because it is really complex. And they have already really large regulatory frameworks, so it doesn't make sense yeah, to this, yeah. you know, layer cake uh, approach to regulation.
1: Yeah. Look. I, look. I, I think. You know, behind the scenes, there's obviously a lot of detail to make that happen. And that's why they pushed it to 2025. Right? Like, you can just, just see, I think it's moving in the right direction. Um, I, uh, I'm not sure if I should share this with you before, you know, we, we, as part of the research into this sector, other countries that treat, you know, disability at least similar to us, right? Like in, you know, the Nordic countries and obviously in the UK. And when you look at the UK, the NHS actually does disability and aged care together yeah it's called adult social care
0: mm-hmm.
1: right and when you look into it you're like wow there's so many similarities it's obviously what we're doing now i'm not suggesting that they're going to be exactly the same because you know if, with an elder you no know, things like bed sores and you know weight loss mm-hmm. and those sorts of things that we really care about yeah they got they might be still unique forever right so it might i can just say it structurally like the registration groups right over time but yeah i think naturally it will happen
0: yeah, yeah well, I'm I'm from an early childhood background and for me it's really similar the early childhood the approach to care for early childhood and the approach for for the elderly, the the approach in is really really similar. I know there's you know it's it's opposite sides, but the approach of the holistic care of of seeing development as holistic and that one area affects another, and you can't treat a bed sore without also treating you know why they're getting the bed sore and you know getting them up to be active more and the mental health of why they've stayed in bed and all of the other things that happen. I think the the holistic approach is consistent in all of the care. Um, it's really just that we, we seem to have become specialists in one area and forgotten about it and drawn these circles around things and hyper-specialised without realising that someone who's 64 is going to turn 65, someone who's 7 is going to, you know, a child is going to turn into an adult, is going to turn into a, a an, an older or an elderly person, um, you know, and birth and death are just the extremes of that. So I, I think it really makes sense of having a health system that caters for everybody and then having funding within that and specialties within that that overlap so you have that consistency of care through life.
1: You know, it's interesting you brought up childcare, right? Like if you look at from an innovation standpoint, you know, I've I've had kids go through um, childcare the the last probably decade and decade plus, right? So obviously as a parent experiencing that journey as a customer, I suppose, of a childcare place, there's a lot more innovation happening in like, you know, childcare centres. Yeah compared to what we see in NDIS and even in aged care, right? They they they're experimenting with all sorts of little things. They're not they're not afraid to try it to, to give it a better experience, right? Like, you know, I'm not sure about you, Tanya, but I remember my the childcare center that we went to, they would have these I can't remember the, the apps and the application names, but I remember getting live feeds yeah. of what the kids were doing.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Right? Yeah. Right. So so it gave me peace of mind, right? To 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 trust them. Whereas before You had no visibility, no transparency. Yeah. I haven't seen too much of that. I've seen a little bit, obviously, in aged care, probably more than disability.
0: I I think, yeah, uh, early childhood is is well advanced with the funding, with the systems, with the regulation. They are doing a review of the system this year. Um, But I think it was 2010 they moved to a new curriculum and a new model. And so in 2010, they had this huge change. It couldn't even, could have even been earlier than that. Um, But they have mandatory qualifications in childcare um, or in early childhood. And, um, that really changed the landscape um, so that early childhood is now seen as an extension of the education system, and that was something that, that was fought for really hard for a really long time. Um, and I thought moving from early childhood into disability and, and aged care that disability was further ahead, but it's really clear that actually the systems in early childhood is, is much more um, mature, and I think that's somewhat the maturity of the NJS being a, only a 10-year scheme where early childhood is you know many more years than that. Um I think Andreas will get there. But there's a lot to learn from looking at models like early childhood and my previous experience in running registered training organisations also under similar government regulation. There's a lot we can learn from them on how to manage quality, on how to manage government, on how to manage government schemes. Um, And actually, I've just been accepted into doing a PhD to just do just that. I'm going to be looking at what can we learn from more mature schemes that we can apply, specifically with small and medium businesses, because childcare small and medium businesses and so are RTOs. And, and it seems their regulation seems to be a lot easier to implement. And if, if mm-hmm. you know, my experience in both doing childcare audits and doing RTO audits and doing NDIS audits, an NDIS audit is about a quarter of an RTO audit um, and a mm-hmm. childcare centre is about half of an RTO audit as far as, you know, uh, how big they are, how how much they involve involved they are. So NDIS actually isn't that big you know, big of a challenge um, for someone who knows what they're doing. But for NGOS providers, it is insurmountable and complex. Um, And I think we could really learn a lot from what have those providers gone through, what knowledge have they gained. Um, And if we can bring that knowledge to both NGOS providers and home care providers, I think we can create a framework to actually evolve um, their businesses much faster.
1: Mm. Yeah, I think, Interestingly, I'm, I'm not sure if you have the same advice for you know people who, who join the sector, but whenever I get like a <clears throat> a new employee from out of sector, is it, oh, I don't know, it might need some blood use it? <laughs> That might just be an overflow from the kids talking about childcare. Mm. Picked up some from the kids. No, no, I was just saying, like, one of the things I always say to to new staff who join our team if they haven't come from sector is to do the homework, right, to study the NDIS practice standards. Like, to be able to help people manage quality, you need to study that thing. You need to really understand what's in it. And, and again, this is is just pure my observation, but some of the providers – that that I've met over <clears throat> the last 5 years 5 6 years they haven't read it mm-hmm. they they haven't done the homework yeah and i'm not suggest like it's not an easy read i'm not suggesting it's an easy read but um they haven't even read it daniel so for me the the maybe the education in it or maybe maybe there's something that that the government can do to make that more easily consumed to actually yeah. not just go, oh, we've done our job and, and here's the piece of legislation. Who, who, What normal person sits there and leads, reads legislation? Right?
0: Yeah, I think the adult learning principles will tell you that the, that it's, it's only going to be read when it's relevant, which is when an auditor right. is asking you a question about it, right? And so right. I, I, I run an audit coaching program where I take a group of people through four set sessions and everything I say, I pull the practice standards up on the screen, And 99% of the time, they've never looked at them before. But what I'm doing, what I'm trying to do psychologically is give the practice standards relevance and explain how it fits in with the evidence and how the evidence fits in with their practice. And I think if they could actually understand, and I create mapping documents, but actually flowing that backwards and going, okay, I'm doing this but drawing out for them how their action links to their process, which links to their policy, which links to the legislation and makes that relevant, that's the only way you can actually get them to even palate looking at them. Because I I, mean, I know the practice standards, I know every single practice standard, and I can tell you that I've read them a million times and some of them still don't make sense right? And I'm highly educated, highly articulate, work with them all the time. If they don't make sense, if some of them don't make sense to me, it tells me that they're just not easily digestible. You know, they haven't been written for the lay person. And I actually think there was someone that did their PhD on accessing the NGIS as a participant who found that on the AQF level, so in education, we've got 10 levels of AQF with a doctorate being 10, certificate one being a one, a diploma is a, a five on an AQF level that to navigate the NDRS as a participant you would need a six or above, so which is a bachelor's oh, degree wow. or above because of the, the complexity of the language used. So you'd think that the same for the the providers. I don't think the study's been done, but you can use words and have a look at what AQF level the words sit on, and the practice standards would have to be a level six or a level seven as far as the words used to explain things. They're not easy read, and I don't mean easy read for intellectual disability, but for lay people. And so we've made it complex. We've made it... Complex and therefore people just get scared and go, it's too hard. I'm just not going to bother with it. Um, Or they they read them incorrectly. Um, So I think. You know, I don't think it's government's job to make it easier. It's government's jobs to set the standards. I think it's it's private businesses like like myself and and even, even your business to really make the, the, the frameworks easy to implement and understand. And then it's up to providers to want to do that work, to get to know those things and feel that that's important to them. Um, and if we didn't have an audit process, no one would read the standards um, and no one would yeah, yeah. know... Yeah, and it kind of scares me with having so many unregistered providers because I know that that means they have never read the code of conduct, they've never read the reporting guidelines, and if someone dies in their care, what are they going to do? Mm. <laughs> you know, they yeah, don't some have some any some processes stuff. behind them.
1: It's quite interesting for us. Um, you know, most of our customers are registered providers. Yeah. Um, but you know, over over the years, we've had we do have customers who are unregistered providers, and it, and it does warm my heart, right? Because now, when an unregistered provider who voluntarily is is trying to step up their their quality right to a higher standard because you know I think that's the argument unregistered providers aren't held to the same level of quality. Um, you know we've got a few unregistered providers who are using our system that realize that uh, you know I'm not sure if I <clears throat> proposition it this way. My, my view is that if you manage compliance the right way, it actually saves you money.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, it absolutely saves you money. I think, you know, when I do presentations and keynotes speaking, I talk all the time about the ROI of quality. And for me, quality isn't just a tick in the box to get through audit, but it's actually having systems and processes in place that help you scale your business as well. And and I think that's where unregistered providers come and want to start using policy is when they actually realise that they need to systemize their processes and train people. And to train people, they need things written down so they can can give them to them and transfer that knowledge to somebody else.
1: Yeah, totally. Yeah. Oh, I suppose oh, one, of the things, <clears throat> one of the things I didn't mention before. Um, so, coming from um, you know, the corporate sector, process maps, process maps is a thing. Yeah. So, you know, if, you, if you're in a big bank, they've got hundreds of, if not thousands, of process maps. In our sector, I don't run into a lot of process maps. It's not as popular. Yeah. No, we've got a lot of written procedure. So one of the things that I'm trying to do behind the scenes really <clears throat> is to try to get more process into our sector. Right. Where you're not just documenting the the rules of how you engage, but documenting how you're going to engage. Right. So that's one of those side things in the in the product that we have is actually a process mapping tool. It's just yeah. that I don't I don't I don't call it process mapping because I don't wanna Scare people away to go, what's roses mapping, Walter? No, 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 don't worry about it. It's just, it's just a way to present process. Yeah. But the you know, process maps have that ability to cross this kind of knowledge gap because process map is a picture.
0: Yeah.
1: It's an easier way to consume this process flow. Absolutely. And so it's, it's easy on the eye for new people who, who maybe English is a second language. It's easier to engage. So that's something that, that I think, again, we, we don't talk about it a lot because we don't want to scare people away because it, it, it feels like, you know, technology. You know, as a, as a technology vendor, sometimes we have to go, no, 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 don't worry about the technology. It's not scary. Mm-hmm. It's <laughs> it's easy to use because we're, we're just trying to trying to move the needle, right, ultimately on, on what they're trying to achieve, which is trying mm-hmm. to manage compliance.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I process map everything. Like I, I even have a process map to how to do the laundry in my house and how to stack my dishes. <laughs> And I'm not joking, I really do. Um, that's <laughs> I had I had au pairs for over 10 years and so teaching a 17-year-old, a new 16 or 18-year-old every six months how to do things in the house, it required training. And so being a teacher, I systemize, I create training manuals and so in my laundry is a flow chart. And my 12-year-old son now can follow the flow chart and do the washing just as well as anybody else. Um, so, yeah, I, I love process maps and I think there's definitely a place. And you know, it's one of my favourite things to do with clients is to process map their their uh, participant journey from start to finish so that they can actually mm-hmm. see it. And then we can talk about where the documents lie. Um, and the documents mm-hmm. should be secondary. You know, the documents shouldn't dictate the process. The, docu- the processes should be dictated by what actually works, right? Otherwise, it's backwards. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So once we map that out, then we can see okay, well this is the, this is why is a problem. You've got 500 documents to fill out here and six documents to fill out here. Can we split that out so it's 10 documents every month, or you know whatever makes sense in their business, and start for them to actually have some thought about how these things work, rather than just thinking, oh well, I've bought these policies and I'm going to follow them because the policy must know better than me. It's like, well, no, you have bought the policies, but now you're, it's your chance to make them them your own and customize them to what works for you because out of 36 registration groups and 10,000 providers, what you do is different from what the chemist down the road does, or the taxi driver, or the sill home. Not everyone is created equally, and so your policies need to kind of and your processes more importantly need to reflect that. Um, yeah. And I think back to what you said about staff using documents. My guidance is never to give staff policies; it is to give them the document, the output. So if they've, you know, if they're, if someone is supposed to be knowing what a complaint management process is, I wouldn't give them the complaint policy. What I would suggest is that you give them either. A fact sheet, or a process map, or a one-page fact sheet, which has the highlights relevant to them, because we want it to be relevant to their function and given in a way that they understand it. Otherwise, it does just become, you know, noise.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, Look, yeah. I, I totally agree. Right, like um, ultimately, and that's where I think a lot of people, um, in terms of the, in that maturity journey, in, in, in terms of compliance. No, I, I think when you look at legislation, you instantly think, okay, these are things I just need to adhere to. Yes. But you have to see through that and go, okay, what are they trying to get us to do? What yeah. are the outcomes that that actually is driving towards? Yeah. And then how do I get there as a provider, right? And, and I think, I'm think i I'm sure you've seen some providers figuring that out and then you know, you know taking that journey, but there's still a lot that's still that Dean Headlights kind of view of going, oh, I just need to tick these boxes.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, again, it's just the maturity of the providers, but give them another 10 years and people will be saying, actually – what actually works in my business? What do I actually need? Is it a policy? Is it a work document? Is it a work instruction? Is it a flow chart? Is it a training video? What actually is, you know, what's the root cause of the issue and how do I address the root cause rather than just trying to tick a box that in order to ask for? And, you know, if in order to ask for a business plan, doesn't mean you need to give them a business plan. It means you need to explain how you, or evidence, how you do business planning, which might not be a business plan. It might be a minutes of meetings. It might be lots of other things. And, you know, taking the power back of this process and really owning your quality management and being responsible for it um, Mm -hmm. is, you know, my key when I work with clients one-on-one is the whole thing I'm trying to do is get them to understand it. Why do you do it? Mm -hmm. And how do you edit that to actually be relevant and meaningful in your specific business?
1: Well, I think um, there's a webinar that I run every couple of months where I kind of dissect um, the NDIS practice standards, right? And one of the things I love pointing out on the NDIS practice standards is that, you know, it mentions the word policies and procedures a lot. So if you read it just superficially, you just go, oh, I just need a lot of policies and procedures. But after the word policies and procedures, it has okay. the words in place, yeah. no, in place, in place. And I go, that's the key word, guys. Not the policies and procedures, but the in place. So my question to you is, what does in place mean to you? So you know to challenge them to go. What does in place mean? Does in place mean you have it in a folder? Yeah. No. Clearly, I think they 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 catch catch on after that, right? To go yeah. oh, in place means you know people actually work aligned to that. Okay, so so that's so much scope for you to do whatever you need to do to make sure that your business operates in line with that, right? So I think that's the fun bit about what we do, right, Tanya? I like I love taking these you know people on that journey to, for them to see that. It's not a cover-your-butt exercise. It's not a checkbox exercise. It's actually an exercise to run a really good business and to actually grow it. Yeah. That's just my view anyway.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's what quality is about, right? It's not just about audit. It's about the quality of the business. And if we can get the business Mm -hmm. stuff right, it means that you've got the systems and structures in place to run a high-quality business, which is about impacting Mm -hmm. the participant's life and increasing their quality, the quality of service to them. That's, you know, the end of it.
1: And then and then, ultimately, you know, again, one of the things that, that I think we all have recognized in this sector is that uh, in the sector, business comes from, a lot of your business comes from referrals. It's not like you, you, you know, you do a massive marketing campaign and you get all these customers. Of course, that, that works too. But, you know, a lot of your customers will come from referrals. So as a service provider, if you do a really good job because you've, you've, you've managed quality, if anything, you're probably maximizing your opportunity to get more referral business anyway. Right. Um, So, for me, there's all these good uh, intangibles. I'll I'll even call them right. Like they're not directly related to you investing in quality, but they'll add to value to your business downstream. And I think that's something that sometimes uh, people just go, "Okay, how much is quality going to cost me?" Yeah. Well, it's (laughs) it's not just about the cost of quality, right? Yeah. Correct.
0: Thank you so much for chatting today. I think we've covered a lot. Uh, I think it's been really interesting um, to talk about all things quality with another expert in the space. Um, thanks for joining me. I guess lastly, if people want to learn more about your quality management system, what is the best way for them to contact you?
1: Um, so we, we have two websites and they, they they have a form on there, so um, centralassist.com.au or the dedicated QMS page, which is centralqms.com.au or you can just send me an email actually at uh, info at Perfect.
0: Thanks so much for joining me. It's been great.
1: It's always talk- great talking to you, Tanya. Thanks for having me on and uh, we'll talk again soon.
0: Yeah, looking forward to it. See you later.
1: Bye. On the next episode of Innovate for Impact.
0: Spending an awful amount of time and energy in building the skills and capacities of individuals We've also got an industry that needs a lot of help to build its capacity to welcome those individuals into their workplaces. So there's an awful lot of energy that goes into building the relationships with the automotive industry, finding opportunities to help them to be more inclusive. Thank you for joining us on another enlightening episode of Innovate for Impact. Stay tuned for more thought-provoking conversations and innovative ideas that drive positive change within the NDIS space. Remember, together we're shaping a future where innovation and impact go hand in hand.